Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of our Feast podcast recordings. Today we are joined by none other than Yost Rothweiler and I am a professional at butchering names so that may not be how it's actually pronounced but we're going to talk today about what is going on in his world with Feast. He's been doing some really cool stuff and I think it's worth sharing it with the rest of you out there listening. Yost, man, how are you doing today? And maybe we could just start by getting a bit of background on you and what you've got going on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for the for the introduction. I'm very happy to be here. Um, yeah, so maybe a bit about myself first. I currently work at uh, Agen, which is a payment company. Um, and uh, we're doing all of our development on-premise. Um, and recently, or at least a few years ago, we started introducing machine learning into the platform, um, ma- mainly focused on sort of the payments flow to optimize this process. So think of, uh, for instance, fraud detection and uh, optimizing the success rate of payments. I've been with Ajin now for two years, uh, worked on the sort of core data platform for the last year, mainly uh, focused on, on the machine learning side there. And recently we have split off uh, from the general data, uh, data infrastructure team into a specific machine learning operations team, uh, which we're uh, uh, working on with, with five people now and uh, yeah, also working to introduce Feast as one of the uh, new core components to that platform. Yeah, and you definitely were one of the people that when I threw up something in the Kubeflow Slack about the, uh, the idea of doing this Feast podcast, you reached out right away and you were like, hey man, I've got some cool stuff going on with Feast. Maybe it's worth talking about. So I really appreciate that. And I didn't mention it before, but Willem is also here with us hiding in the background. (laughs) Hey guys, Uh, thanks for having me, Demetrios, and uh, excited to find out a bit more about how you guys are running ML at uh, Agen. Yeah, I think there's a lot that we can dive into here. Maybe the first thing is just what made you want a feature store? What made you decide on that? And then what does your stack look like in general? Because you said you got five people on the team, right? Doing MLOps specific stuff. Yeah. So it's my guess that you've got a lot of things that are in there that people want to know about. So please tell as much as you can. Yeah, sure. So maybe I can start a bit with with the sort of uh, platform that we run and and how it's uh, how it's set up, and then we can go over to to the feature store and and what we're trying to achieve there. Yeah, what what's important uh, to to know about the the data platform that we run is that it's completely hosted on premise. So we're uh, running a deployment of the Hortonworks data platform, and we're using Spark as our main processing engine there, and in terms of uh, machine learning, uh, what we started out with was a, a very decentralized approach to machine learning, uh, where people would use or build their own pipelines on the platform and then try to move that into production in some way or stay with offline scoring of models uh, and then sort of push the results to the to the rest of the platform in a, platform in a way. But what we're aiming towards is to have a more centralized approach where we offer common tooling to all the data science teams. And that's what we're focused on right now is sort of moving back from the from the serving of the models to the training and eventually the, the data that goes into the model and provides common tooling in all of these steps. And now we're, we're finally at a point where we can have discussions with data scientists around how they import data to train their models and how they use the existing warehouse to construct these these training data sets. 
and yeah that that's that's one of the the step actually where uh, where feast now comes in we we didn't really start with feast as sort of a, a product that was going to or with a feature store in general as something that would solve our governance or collaboration on creating these data sets in the first place we were more looking towards a solution that uh, would help us enrich the uh, requests that we made to the models using some online store that would store aggregates of, of certain time windows or, or averages over time. And we, want, we wanted to uh, be able to, to look up such values in the, in the online flow. But as we started looking into possible solutions there and thinking about how we could do that ourselves with the tooling that we have available to us, we also saw that this is one of the things that is commonly or yeah, more commonly implemented using a feature store. And so we also looked at sort of how we could make the scope of, of this project a bit bigger such that we could capture or, or solve for different problems using the a single effort there. I wanted to kind of drill into something you started on, but didn't fully expand on, but thanks for that overview. Um, do you want to maybe just take us back to the teams and the structure that you currently have? You said you started off as kind of like on the data infrastructure or data platform side, and now you've got a five person MLOps team, but how many different groups of data scientists are there? And what's the kind of working dynamic between the tools and the platforms you build and kind of what they're using on a daily basis? And is it one of you build APIs and systems and interfaces for them? Or do you work alongside these data scientists on specific projects? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So we started out as completely decentralized data science teams which would choose their own tooling and, and go their own way to sort of drive analysis and, and create uh, models. Uh, what we saw is that we needed a, a sort of centralized team that would build infrastructure for these data science, data science teams for them to do their jobs more effectively. And so that's when we started a new team, which was based, mostly made up from data engineers and infrastructure engineers. And what they've worked on is basically the, this Fortinworks uh, data uh, platform deployment and sort of the, the bare minimum that you would need to run ETL DAX. So we use Airflow mainly as our uh, uh, job uh, scheduler. And all the data scientists, they, they write their own ETL jobs for Airflow, but the, the code is all located in a, in a mono repo where everyone collaborates and also the data infrastructure or yeah the data infrastructure team uh, collaborates to sort of improve on the tooling that we have so we we have this team that provides the infrastructure but they don't write your uh, your dags or your your training pipelines that's the data scientists coming to the platform and experimenting and and training themselves okay so the process of is going from decentralized to centralized was kind of driven in some senses through these infrastructure or platform teams that consolidated a lot of the boilerplate code and kind of like these repositories and infrastructure pieces. And now the data scientists come there because it's the most convenient place to get into production. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you said that you're kind of, kind of running on, you know, you've got Airflow and Hortonworks and so your stack is completely on-premise. Do you want to maybe take us through, we can drill into the use case perhaps in a sec, but like what is the kind of standard template for like a, an end-to-end -end ML system if you start from like the data scientists, you know, starting a job, it's an airflow, all the way to serving, like what components are used along that flow? Yeah, sure. So usually like when, when a data scientist starts with an idea, they would have access to, uh, Jupyter Hub to sort of start their first uh, yeah, data wrangling and, and sort of investigating what, what could work for, for a certain uh, model. So they have interactive access to the data also. After this is validated to a certain extent, they would look and see how other people write their uh, machine learning training decks. And that's usually made up of different 
components in, in an Airflow DAG, which are like loading the data, training, uh, doing hyperparameter tuning. And then the last step would be to uh, create a artifact that can be served in, in sort of our online infrastructure. So yeah, that's basically the, the packaging of the model. And that would be the result of the Airflow DAG. And then from there, they ask any of us or, or yeah, currently uh, one of our team to register that model as a certain version. And from there, again, sort of the process is automated to, to deploy that model uh, into production. And then they would reach out to a, a backend engineer who would basically code the call to that model. So yeah, that's, that's the entire process. And then of course starts the, the validation of the results and, and sort of experimenting with different model versions. I've got a quick question for you on that and it might totally throw us on a tangent, but when you're going through like the structure of the teams and how you knew or your company knew to create a ML ops team and then to create, like I think you mentioned before, a data structures team, right? And so how was that decision made and why was it so interesting? Because that's something that I feel like you don't see a lot of is mm -hmm. companies making the decision, hey, we're just going to make this team the infrastructure team and then let the data scientists work with whoever it is. But it's starting to be an emerging trend, I feel like. So can you walk us through that process? Yeah, I think one of the one of the biggest changes that we went through in, in sort of organizing this data infrastructure team is to uh, put infrastructure and software engineers or backend engineers, data engineers together in one team. And that was uh, something that we that we haven't really done in the past in in teams that we work in, uh, but this is, yeah, I guess the the sort of work that that is tremendously slowed down if you don't have the infrastructure people sitting together with uh, with the people who know how to write the applications that will run on top of it, hmm. um, and then like. At a certain point, like the, the data infrastructure that we had was coming to a certain level of maturity. And then we saw that like it was also becoming quite a big team because we were heavily invested in, in it. And then different people were starting to work on different applications running on top of the of the platform. And that's when we, we split off into the machine learning specific team, but also other teams focused on, for instance, uh, generating insights from the data. And that point right there when when you say like we started to get to a certain maturity and it was like there was a critical mass yeah. was what I hear you saying. And so that point right there, what were some signs that you had enough maturity besides like the team becoming much bigger and you're investing a lot more into it? Were there other signs that made you think, wow, okay, now we need to do something about this because it's starting to get a little chaotic. Um, yeah, so I think one side of it is sort of the natural yeah, end of a project that we had with an entire new cluster being deployed. So we, we had the new cluster, it was deployed like as we wanted it to. Uh, it was a completely new iteration on top of what we originally had. And that was sort of the moment to look beyond that to see what, what's next. And I think... Again, as a company is trying to organize uh, work into like very small, uh, specialized team rather than having uh, yeah very big teams uh, working on a yeah. lot of different things. So I think the combination of sort of delivering a milestone and uh, seeing what what's next and that different people should uh, focus on very specific parts of that drove that uh, that decision. So I wanted to kind of drill into something. I think that'll frame the conversation a bit better for some of the listeners. And that's uh, talking about the use cases of Adyen. Do you maybe want to take us through, I mean, I think you alluded to having transaction or payment processing flows and wanting to apply ML along that flow to optimize that process. Can you maybe drill into the primary core product use cases that you have? Yeah. Yeah, so... Our main business is uh, working as a payments provider. So what we do is we have 
certain uh, merchants, customers of ours, who are usually uh, bigger companies that want to accept payments, whether it's online or in store, and they connect to our API. Now, when they connect to the API, they send a request to authorize a payment. And once they send that request, we have to do a number of things. We want to first detect whether that's possibly a fraudulent uh, shopper. Uh, so that's something that we do with machine learning in that in that same sort of online flow where someone makes a request and expects a response. But also in that same flow, for instance, we try to optimize the success rate of a payment being accepted by the card schemes like Visa MasterCard. So that's sort of the, the online flow where we focus a lot on uh, fraud detection and conversion optimization. And then a lot of different models that we host are more focused or they are offline models, which for instance, uh, aim to identify fraudulent merchants of ours, which uh, show weird behavior. So that's something that we do yeah, offline uh, without the, the need for direct feedback from a model. And uh, based on that, we, we can, for instance, signal uh, fraud analysts that can have a look at the data to see uh, yeah, what action to, to take there. But it's a combination of, of online and offline models that we're uh, creating. Okay, that's interesting. So, you know, one of the things that I saw in my experience is also as these kinds of payment-related uh, use cases often involve a lot of different groups. So at Gojek, we'd have um, kind of data infrastructure teams working with ML teams, data scientists being involved with creating models. We had hybrid systems where you have both machine learning as well as a rule-based systems being applied onto mm. the same transactional flows. Yeah. Um, so you'd have like a, we had like a rule-based system where analysts could contribute you know, because there's, they'd say five analysts for each data scientist rules and these rules are often a product of specific operational, um, you know, events that happen. Like they discover that there's potentially some kind of fraudulent activity happening, or some kind of, you know, voucher exploit, or you know, something happens on you know day zero, and they need to immediately create a rule. They can't wait for an end-to-end -end ML system to be, you know, retrained or reconfigured. So we had all these people involved in ensuring the success of that product. Is that is it also kind of a, a complex multi-team effort or right now because of the infrastructure, do you feel like teams can kind of, you know, work on their own projects kind of in silos, even though they're kind of cross-pollinated with different skill sets? Yeah, yeah, that's actually something that, uh, that we also see a lot. So what we see is that, for instance, the teams that want to do uh, scoring of, of models in, in this online flow where you want to authorize a payment, are uh, they, they've received much more uh, focus on sort of uh, creating a, a proper infrastructure for them, and so these teams are are still on a different page than, for instance, other teams that are working in the offline flow and, and need also uh, have these rules that they create over time and sort of append to to a list of rules. So I, I would say we're. We're not on the same page yet entirely, but that is the goal to, to in the end, uh, bring everyone together. We also, like from legacy or whatever you want to call it, we, we have a lot of sort of rule-based uh, logic in, in the code base. And yeah, that's, that's something that we sort of have have kept at a distance so far, but we would like to incorporate that over the next few months. Yeah, it seems like uh, I haven't heard of any companies that could fully get away from rule-based because it's so powerful and explicit and deterministic compared to machine learning. So what most companies use is kind of like a two-stage process of you know ML for some aspect of the decision-making, uh, often computing scores, you know, risk scores or fraud scores, and then having kind of like more deterministic rules that are as a layer on top of that. And I think the challenge is typically, how can you provide the machine learning model the complete context of what's happening so that it actually trains and is effective? But uh, sorry, I didn't want to digress and uh, talk too much about you know some of the other things, but uh, I wanted There's to kind of drill into... I wanted sorry. to jump in there, Willem. 
that yep. you mentioned, which is, is super interesting for me, is that idea that the rules base is much easier and it's much faster to do things with. So that makes a lot of sense too. And machine learning at this point, I imagine for most people, it's so much slower of a process to iterate on or get a model out there. And so until it becomes as fast as the rule-based system, then it's just not realistic. Yeah, indeed. So this is also something that we see currently a model and or a model version even is something that requires a lot of attention from a bigger group of, of engineers. And yeah, uh, usually a rule-based system is, is easily reviewed and just pushed into the world. For us, it's always interesting to see when when someone introduces a new model type to see sort of what are the bottlenecks are, because usually we don't get a lot of feedback on this, like while someone is iterating, but when we onboard an entirely new team, it's very interesting to see where we actually lack documentation or, or sort of uh, our interface are not entirely right. Cool, that's fascinating. Thanks for framing the use case for us. I mean, I'd like to paint a picture for you, for listeners on the complete stack and the use case before we dive into the feature store specific things. So that's why I think that was quite a kind of important. But um, so I'll have two questions. One, the second one is, like, you know, how does the how does feast and the feature store fit into kind of your stack? But the first one that leads up to that is more around like, what are the key problems that you have um, in the MLOps team? Specifically, you know, it can be data or non-data related, but just like the, the kind of root level problems that you are experiencing. And I think you were you, you you just you said earlier you started from kind of like the online side and then moved backwards. So I'm assuming you're encountering these as you're moving backwards through the stack. Mm. Yeah, indeed. So. I, I think, uh, yeah, we talked about this earlier, but like, I think a lot of companies start from the serving part where they say, we just want to get a model into production. And once that's uh, sort of uh, complete and it works, then suddenly they realize that, or at least that's what we uh, found is that actually the interfaces that they use for training are really messed up or they can't properly track their uh, experiments or the, the process takes evolves multiple people in different steps and it's a, it's a pain to roll something out. So yeah, we, we worked backwards from, from the serving, uh, moving to sort of this training orchestration, uh, and tracking what's happening, keeping lineage. And now we're at a point where most of that is, yeah, common tooling for the teams that are currently using the platform. But then the, where they get their data from is still a huge uh, black box. So, or at least for us, it's difficult for us to, to say that, yeah, or basically to build any um, sort of tooling on top of the actual data because we don't know what, what people use for their data input. And uh, if you think about things like data validation or sort of monitoring drift in the online flow, it would help a lot if you know what the definition would be of certain features in your system and how they how they were created. So we're, yeah, it, it sounds weird because you would say, okay, let's start with the data to train a model, but that's actually where we're at now. And, and that's sort of the end stage from where we started. Well, I think it makes sense to some degree, right? Because you're starting with the engineering aspect, which is a kind of deal breaker if you don't have the operational and the online side. You know, you're not in production, so nothing's live. And so, layering on the kind of efficiency gains of lineage and artifact tracking and best practices makes sense as a V2 state uh, step. But I, I wanted to kind of explore your upstream problem there a bit. Um, so you said that the, you're not. It's not 100% clear what is being used inputs into these pipelines. Um, is that because not all of the teams have to use the common data infrastructure um, that they can source data from, let's say, production databases or you know external sources, or do they have to use a kind of like common like Airflow or Spark or some kind of central system that it's just it's kind of a black box because it's too complex. But in theory, you could kind of tease apart the metadata there. No, I, I think it's not so much in the sort of the transformation step that we do using using Spark and Airflow. It's more in the 
in the actual sources that are, that are queried. So, for instance, um, different people might log different events from the from the let's say main platform, the payments platform, and then that might end up somewhere in the in the warehouse on HDFS. And what we what we don't know is sort of how people are are collecting these. Yeah, these different sources in, into a single one, how they're combining it. We could look into sort of how, how these are used on each in, for each individual case, but we don't have a reference point where we say, okay, from this moment on, we expect certain thing, things from those sources and we adhere to certain conventions or we uh, deal with schema evolution in a certain way. So it's really the, the sources that we want to uh, yeah. So, so what we saw, what I've seen in the past that's worked is there's, I guess, two approaches. And the one was you kind of solve the root problem, and the other one is you defensively protect against the uncertainty. So, what I've seen happen in the past is if you're taking the kind of online back to data um, approaches, mm -hmm. you, we at Gojek replaced all IO in all ETL pipelines with like our own IO. So in order to push, let's say, to a production environment, you need to already be using our infrastructure. And in order to get to use the pipelines, you need to use specific libraries in your pipelines that um, we prescribe to you. So for example, we can give you a, a library that pulls data from sources and a library that pushes data to destinations. But because you're using our library, we control which sources and destinations, and we can produce metadata from that. And so, you, if if we prevent them from pushing directly to like stores and production, then they have to use our tooling. And you know, implicitly, they're, we're going to be collecting metadata about that, and we can kind of build the lineage graph. So that's one approach. And then that cascades upstream, upstream, all the way to basically a point where they say, "Oh, I have this other, you know, notebook, or I have this." You know, CSV file that I'm pulling from the operations team or this API that I'm hitting, it's not available as a source in your tooling. Can you please add it? And then the conversation changes to them having to ask the data infrastructure team to add that. But, so that's one approach. And that's a kind of very heavy handed approach. And that can be something that takes you know, months or years to kind of get to a point of stability. Mm -hmm. yeah. Another approach that we took um, in the shorter term was to layer on top of existing ETL pipelines data validation. So either using TFDV, which is what we used, and then we also had a custom internal system um, at Kojak that kind of protected our production environment from you know data drift or data going out of sync. Um, so by you know, profiling data and by building these validation rules and then adding checkpoints, we it, it still was a problem that we didn't know where certain parts of our data came from. We didn't have the full lineage, but we could pre prevent the teams from kind of destroying production um, or, you know, if some kind of upstream pipeline failed and it was dependent on, let's say, an external API or service, we knew about it immediately at least, um, which isn't always the case. Like sometimes, an, you know, part of the pipeline fails and you don't know that the pipeline is out of sync or it's like taking the wrong shape or distribution and, you know, it can cost millions of dollars. Um, mm -hmm. So do either of those approaches seem reasonable to you or is are those things that you're looking at adding? Yeah, so I would say we, we started out with uh, Ladder. So we also implemented data validation based on uh, TensorFlow data validation. In the end, it didn't bring us very far, especially because the adoption across teams was very difficult to realize. And right now, the the tooling that we have with the, with the training on Airflow, it's much more an approach that uh, yeah that you explained uh, in in sort of the first scenario. We have various steps in the in the training pipeline and if people want to store or load data they do it using our libraries indeed so yeah we control basically what the structure of a certain experiment should look like and how a data set and, and a model artifact sort of fit into that uh, structure yeah so speaking about artifacts let's maybe swing over to feast and just figure out like 
how are you currently using Feast in your stack? And what was like core problem that you wanted to introduce Feast to solve? Yeah, so the, the core problem that we wanted to solve initially was not actually this sort of data uh, governance part. It was more on the online scoring of models. So uh, what we saw is that if we want to use uh, or if we want to deploy a model that optimizes conversion rates by, for instance, changing the, the message that we send to the payment card schemes, then what would what could be very interesting is to know, for instance, what kind of, and I don't, don't want to go in too much detail of the use case, but like what kind of changes have worked in the past for that specific merchant or country. So in the, the current situation, most of that information is provided by the client that calls the model. And we might have some transformations or state in the model itself, which is also able to sort of combine the, the different features. But what we really wanted was uh, a store, basically an online store that we would query in the same flow right before we invoke the model and then enrich the request that, that already comes in that contains basic information on the payment with some additional features that would live in, in this uh, online store. So that could be averages over time or uh, other type of, of aggregates and then uh, send that same request to the to the model and one of the benefits we see is that at least we would be able to remove the state from the model and move it to the to the online store and also drive down the uh, latency of the model because now we have to do all these transformations in python and if we could sort of optimize that uh, in our case on the java platform then yeah we feel that, that it would uh, uh, significantly reduce the latency. So it's both being able to train and score on, on a richer set of features, as well as uh, bringing down the latency that, that really got us thinking about implementing a feature store. But this use case, it doesn't really require a feature store. We just have to expose the data somewhere in a, in a database and make it accessible for, for lookups. Yeah. So, but uh, just to kind of uh expand on that do you also care a lot about the training and serving consistency or was it mostly about shipping the data these features into production and making it available yeah so so we started out looking into sort of this problem that we wanted to solve and then we started looking at what is available yeah mostly in, in sort of open source projects what other people are doing and then we saw that well uh, mostly we we started out looking in looking into feast and sort of the scope that that feast, the scope of problems that feast addresses or, or tackles, but and we saw that actually, like there are actually a lot of other things that that we might want to address in while we ship this data to the to some online store. For instance, one of the things is that we need to know at prediction time sort of which uh, features would would be available or which which ones we want to query and we want those to map exactly to what we have in the in the offline or in the training phase. And then we started thinking more about sort of having a general definition of what a feature in, in our platform means and being able to reason about the uh, yeah this definition and, and reusing it across applications, but also uh, in the end across teams. So that's really when the sort of the scope of the of the of the effort expanded. Okay, I wanted to quickly speak about one aspect of something you said there. Um, you have all of these offline features. Uh, you're shipping them into production, but for many teams, specifically in the payment space, the kind of freshness of the data is really a big deal. So you said you were maintaining state within the models, and presumably that lifecycle is in the order of days. Yeah. So if a stale model could have state from like a couple of days ago and that state could be computed from transformations that are also kind of days uh, old. Is How important is the freshness of the data for you there and kind of what is the ideal freshness that you'd be targeting with these systems? And the reason I asked this is because um, you, the architecture would change if you wanted an order of seconds versus let's say, you know, minutes or you know hours. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, I can comment first on, on sort of the freshness that we would want to have in the system and then sort of what uh, how we're planning to sort of address this need. Ideally, especially for the for the fraud uh, detection or risk assessment of, of the payment, you would want to have data as fresh as even the previous payment, ideally, um, because you could have maybe an attack using a certain credit card that yeah, based on some some behavior that you saw in the last uh, minutes changes your your risk assessment. So ideally, we would move towards, uh, let's say, real-time computation of, of these kind of features. The reality is that most of our processes uh, running on the, on the big data platform that we have are in batch. And so the computation of these features and sort of ingesting it through the data platform would currently take at least 24 hours. So the approach that we're taking is that we first want to enable in general people to, to look up features, uh, which will start out being, uh, let's say 24 hours late or fresh, but we will be working like with, with the data infrastructure team to work on both sides to kind of reduce the, the speed to, to get these features uh, in, into the online store. Right now, it's just a, a matter of making it possible in the first place and then uh, from there optimize it. Yeah, I was just going to mention something on the the answer that you had beforehand about how you didn't really think about getting a feature store and then you started looking into it and you said, huh, this looks like a two-for-one pricing deal. We might as well widen the scope. It was a little off off of this answer that you had and I didn't want to mess up the flow too much. So Willem, jump back into the... Yeah, the I think it's an interesting problem. The space is very interesting and it's it raises a lot of questions to the kind of feature store developers and what functionality we should be providing because most traditional feature stores are analytical systems. They operate in production, but they have they play a little bit looser in terms of what data is available. So if you're building off of batch pipelines, if you're building off of streams, you typically have an eventually consistent system. So even if you, you know, if you have, if your requirement is N minus one transactions being available in the feature store, that's a transactional system basically, right? So if you're pushing events from your production system to a stream, and that first has to go through transformations, and then from the transformations, it gets, you know, it's just like some kind of accumulation of data, and then it gets pushed out to, some location, um, maybe another stream, and then get sunk into the feature store. Typically, that's in the order of like five to 30 seconds at best, right? Because you can't just immediately send those values to the online store because it, it, the transformations often require a little bit of accumulation of events. But what you could do is, as a feature store, you know, if we were going to add this functionality to Feast, for example, and something that I've seen on the Tekton side is, provide on-demand or real-time transformations, provide a way for users like the back-end systems to provide the data that's required to do these computations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the back-end that you have could maybe have the last X events for each user, and then as part of the incoming request to the store, the feature store, the feature store would calculate or, you know, these features or whatever is required for this decision to be made. That's one approach. And then another approach is we could provide a, a transactional synchronous API on the feature store that allows you to write into the online store directly. So a transaction takes place. At the end of the transaction, you say feast dot, you know, write feature vector or something. And you block on that call until you know it's done. And when it's done, you know the online store has that value. So the next request that comes in for that transact that user or account will always get n minus one's features. I think those are the two kind of big proposals. I'd, I'd say that would make sense. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, what, what I'm thinking is that uh, you, you would have, for instance, a feature that uh, captures the number of payments made by a certain shopper in, in the last five minutes. Sort of how, how would that fit in the, in the synchronous transaction? Would the client first invoke or make a call to the to the online store to fetch the current value and then 
have these transformations sort of live in, in code in that application to write back? Yeah, I guess that's the, the, that's why there's a two-stage here. There's the kind of on-demand transformations as well. So I guess if you have a on-demand or um, kind of not a pre-computed transformation as part of the feature store, um, you could in theory do something like an add. So you could like in a single request say, you know, update this feature value and run an on-demand transformation um, as part of that kind of it's 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 kind of like a single record ingestion with transformation. That's I guess the kind of golden state. But the worst case scenario is you read from the feature store, do a transformation, and then write back to the feature store. Uh, that's kind of the most the simplest implementation. Yeah. Yeah, so the first implementation to basically provide the, the data to the uh, to some application that does the transformation before invoking the model, I think that's very similar to, to what we have, but then it just lives in the Python model uh, itself, so it's, it's uh, not fast enough for us. But it would be interesting to sort of know uh, where it would live then, uh, because it's like the logic I can I can imagine would be written in in some standard language like uh, SQL, but then the transformation happens in some application that is uh, part of the feast deployment, right? Yeah. So I guess that depends on how you want to define those transformations. There are multiple approaches, but I think you probably can't get away from having some logic not defined in SQL. Perhaps there's some kind of you know, Java or Scala or Python-based transformations that also get applied as a post-processing step in the offline case, but that's kind of like what you use in most cases for the online um, transformations. Another approach that I've seen is uh, some teams using SQLite. So you can run SQLite in memory um, and it's very fast uh, and that allows you to kind of run SQL in kind of the online case without having more infrastructure to deal with. So jumping off this topic just a little bit, I wanted to ask before we go, as time is winding down, the just zooming out a little bit, and when you need a new tool or when the data scientists ask for a new tool, because before you mentioned like you tried to do something, I think it was with TensorFlow, was it? And you wanted to try and get everyone on TensorFlow, but there was low adoption, right? Uh, I can't remember if it wasn't TensorFlow, but it was the TensorFlow data validation, Yeah, right? Exactly. And so how are new tools introduced how do they like win in the case of TensorFlow validation? It's like that lost or that just died. It didn't work. And is it like the data scientists that are coming to you and saying, hey, we need this? As Willem was mentioning earlier, what happened with him at Gojek when someone would have to go to the team and say, hey, well, we want this uh, Excel. I think you that was your your... Example, Willem, if I'm not mistaken, like, hey, we need some data uh, and we need the lineage of it put into our system. And yeah, that's right. Cool. So the, I'm just wondering, how does the new tool come to be, as you're going from this decentralized to centralization, and people are very opinionated about what they like and what they don't like, and data scientists especially, I know they, they want their specific set of things or they're used to doing it one way or another way and then you come in and you ruin their world because you want them to do it this way or you say, hey, now we're going to be using this tool which you have to do this, which very well may be a best practice that you're throwing in there. But how does that work? Yeah, so um, the, the way that we position our team in, in, the, in the company is that we we offer a platform to the data scientists. So data scientists or data science teams are in a sense our customers internally. And so we try to build for them in the end. And yeah, like you're building any product, I think you're collecting requirements and sort of taking that back to the team to see, okay, what would then be the best approach to build this, deliver it and have people migrate it if necessary. What 
we what, what we saw for uh, let me take one step back so uh, there, there's one article from uh, Spotify that I really like which is describing sort of this paved road of uh, machine learning or data science where you say okay we have all of these tools if you want to use it uh, go ahead if you want to go crazy and do your own thing then that's also fine but yeah be aware that that we're not there to help you in that case and I think that's that's also sort of the approach that we're taking with providing these tools to the data science teams. We show them the benefits and then it's for for a certain time, it's up to them to choose if they want to be the first adopters or see other teams use it first. And then at some point, we of course have to sort of draw a line and say, okay, now please migrate over to the, to the latest uh, uh, tools that we have available. But usually at that point, like the the benefit is is uh, quite big and and sort of uh, yeah worth it for them to migrate. Yeah. Also because they have examples in the code and these kind of things. And are they coming to you with different tools that they want integrated into there, or is it you mainly saying, all right, we we took all the requirements, we we came up with a few different options, and we're going to choose this one. Uh, usually we're reaching out to them to get our requirements and then we try to scope could be a good use case to try this out first and then we sort of reach out to them to say, hey, do you want to use this new set of tooling that, that we've built uh, as a first uh, first user? And yeah, sometimes it's it's more difficult to convince them than other times. But it's, <laughs> but it's also very valuable for us to understand what are, what are the drawbacks and and sort of see uh, what would be the the cost of moving over to new tooling? Hmm. That's fascinating. So, last question for me, and it's totally out of left field, but I know that a lot of people talk about the security conversation, and that has been coming up more and more in the MLOps community about who runs this, who's in charge of making sure it's secure. Is that part of your job description also? Like this infrastructure that you're putting together in this centralized place, do you have to make sure that that's secure? And how have you found it? Like going about it, how has that been? So I would say we have sort of three things here. One is the security of data on, on the data platform in general, which is handled by the data infrastructure team. So that's, let's say, a general platform provider that, that we run in, uh, in iGen. They uh, make governance rules on top of sort of the different tables that we have, who owns it, who is responsible for it, uh, and whether or not, for instance, things like PII can end up on different clusters. Then we have certain teams like anti-money laundering teams, which have quite strict regulations that they have to that they have to work by. And because they have like different requirements from other teams, they also are a bit different in, in their approach to, to building models and, and sort of versioning the data and uh, versioning the code and, and how they review it and these kind of things. And then we, as a team, try to build these, try to build on top of the knowledge of both teams and incorporate this into the standard machine learning uh, tooling as much as possible. But I don't think we will go to the extent where we would say that everyone needs to be on par with what the anti-money laundering team is is doing for their models. Hmm. So one final question from me is, um, so when you were kind of designing the system specifically around the feature store and feast, what, were there any kind of major surprises um, based on your original design or kind of idea that you had around the, the system and what you ended up building? Like, did you end up having to, are there any like components you had to kind of layer on or any kind of changes in the architecture that you had to make to get things to work for your use cases? Yeah, so at Agen, we, we for instance, run our own internal caching mechanism and our own internal streaming framework. So when you look at sort of the ingestion to the online store, then that's very different uh, for us, or at least we could adopt Kafka and Redis, but as you might know, like it's quite a long trajectory to go into to run these new services in an enterprise environment. And also someone has to maintain it. So 
we opted for our own internal tooling there and we're using well, actually a, a batch job to, to push data into the online store. And we're using uh, Postgres currently in combination with our internal caching mechanism to look up the features. So those are two things that are quite different from, I guess, the, the, the fees platform as it is right now. Okay. So it's not so much kind of like core architectural or functional changes. It's more around specific components like databases that you know you, we didn't support and you had to implement yourself or uh, integrations, basically. Yeah, indeed, because we initially we were looking at implementing this ourselves, but then as of the, once we read basically the, the V0.8 uh, RFC that came out, we saw that the focus was much more towards supporting like, or bringing the offline store out of Feast and supporting Spark as the main processing engine. And that fits really well with our infrastructure because everything is in Parquet and, and we use mainly Spark for, uh, for data processing. So we like once we saw the RFC, we knew that uh, this was something that we could work towards and that it would probably fit at least that part of the deployment. So using the SDK and using uh, offline sources in the same way. Uh, and then the online part, we, we uh, decided to do ourselves, basically. Okay, that's actually super great feedback. So I'm happy that the, the RFC was the point that you decided to double down on the, the new feast design. Yeah, we, we ourselves. <laughs> okay, that's the only question, uh, the last question I had, uh, Demetrius. Awesome. Yeah, I think we can finish it up. This has been really insightful for me. I love hearing you two dive into these details and get really technical because I feel like that is something that a lot of people out there will want to know. It's a great use case. And I really appreciate you being very transparent with us and and going into talking to us about so many different pieces of the puzzle, right? You're talking about the team. You're talking about how you're moving from a decentralized to centralized, why you want to do that. And then getting down into the nitty gritty of, of Feast and the implementation and what's going on, what kind of product ideas would be useful for you. So I really appreciate your time. And I want to say thank you to everyone listening. We will throw all of the interesting and relevant links down below. So have a look at that. And until next time, we'll see you all later from the Feast podcast. 